Thank you, Matthew. That's a good reading. Um, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And I want to make sure I take a moment to welcome our Zoomies. Hi, hi, people on Zoom. Um, there's a handful of folks who are out sick, so um, I'm trusting that they're with us on Zoom. Uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, um, you are the great I am, Lord Jesus. You are the great I am. Holy Spirit, you are the great I am, Lord. There is no beginning to you. You just perpetually are. You're the root and foundation of existence. And Lord, it's our privilege and our joy to worship you. Thank you for calling us into fellowship with you. And uh, Lord, we, we gather this morning around your word as your people together to hear what you have to say to us. And I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to these things. And Father, we want to pray for those who, who aren't with us this morning, um, especially thinking of the Kemples, Bob and Judy, who've both been uh, tested positive for COVID. And uh, with Bob being um, weak and recovering from heart surgery, Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, spare them from the worst that COVID has, that it would be a mild case for them that they would uh, be able to recover soon. And uh, Lord, that you would put them back on their feet and bring them back into our fellowship. And Lord, while they're uh, separated, while they're away, may we remember them not only in prayers, but um, in ways that we can encourage and, and strengthen them. So Lord, help us to be with them as we can be um, in a time of pandemic. And we ask again for your healing. Uh, Father, we're grateful for the healing that you brought to uh, previous pastor Dan Daniel Holmquist. Um, Father, I, I pray that after the liver surgery that he would be recovering, um, that he'd wrestle through the pain and as his body re-knits together. And Lord, I, I just thank you that you have delivered him from this, uh, this cancer. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen him and uh, put him back on his feet, that he may have more years uh, to serve and to follow you, to see where it is that you're leading him. And uh, Lord, we know that you brought the cancer to him on purpose. It wasn't something that got past your your sovereign hand or your your gracious love for Daniel, and you took it out of his life at the right time. And so, Lord, would you accomplish whatever purpose it was that you had for him in this, and for Linda as well. And uh, Lord, we just pray that uh, their ministry at uh, Calvary EV Free would be blessed and, and grow because of what you've done. Um, we trust that that you had good intentions in these things. And Father, I want to pray for our upcoming Christmas caroling. Uh, Lord, that's a, a chance for us to stand and sing great truths about the true and living God before people who will actually be happy to have it, happy, happy to have carolers come and, and sing these great truths. Lord, I pray that uh, your promise would be true in this case, that your word will not return void as we sing faithfully and truthfully what your word says. Lord, would you accomplish things to those whom we sing? And uh, Lord, would you uh, bless our going and uh, our fellowship during that and just fill us with the joy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, now as we turn to this passage from uh, 1 Samuel, we pray that you're with us to help us to, to grasp what it is you have to say, that we would see and understand what you're telling us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, there's a book on the book table, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, and the first chapter begins with this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so he goes on, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most proportionate, proportion, I can't pronounce the word, proportionate, fact about any man is not 
what he at any given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. Why is that? He goes on, he says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And, and Tozer is getting that not just kind of out of the blue. He's getting it from scripture. There's a couple of Psalms that say the same thing, but Psalm 135 says, the nations, uh, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And I don't think that the psalmist means that they will become, the, the worshipers of these idols will become deaf, dumb, and mute, and immobile. Um, they will, in a sense, uh, ultimately. But I think what he's talking about is that idea of seeing this God and gravitating towards that. This God represents the ultimate good in the universe, and we want to conform to that, and we're going to go in that direction. A friend of mine who is Norwegian once told me that she was so grateful Christianity came to Norway because before Christianity came, they were brutal people. And they, they had a God who had killed his offspring, ripped skulls open and all of these things. And so their worldview was, was based on violence. And it was Christianity that came in and said, no, let me tell you about the real true and living God. And now Norway is just this, this real peaceful country. They're, they're pretty neutral. Well, what we're going to see this morning as we look at chapter five is this idea of this, this ultimate good, this God that we gravitate towards. And, and how will Jesus react to those gods, those lesser gods like that? Um, where we're at in the story is, remember in chapter four, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was hauled out of the temple or the tabernacle and brought into battle. It was going to be their secret weapon. And they wound up losing. And the Philistines captured the ark and carried it away. Last week, we saw what were the repercussions of the ark being captured for Israel, for God's people. And it was not good. It was a bad, bad response um, in Israel at the time. This week, we're going to kind of back up in the story a little bit. This happens about the same time as what we saw last week, but it's on the other side of the border. We're going to see what happens to the people of Philistia. Uh, Philistia as they capture the ark, and, and how does God deal with them? So this, the section begins, when the Philistines captured the ark, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. So they, they've captured the ark, and they haul it back. They take it into the temple. Why would they take it into the temple of Dagon? Well, there's a, a number of potential reasons. One is when you had great success in battle, you would often take the, the best of the things and haul it into the temple of your God. Uh, this happens in Israel. They bring treasure into the temple. There's a treasury there. Um, but they didn't just bring this into the temple. They set the ark next to Dagon. So maybe what they're thinking here is that um, this God of the Israelites, he's powerful. You remember what they said when, when the ark showed up in the battle? They said, this is the God. These are the gods who defeated the Egyptians. So they're not looking at, at the God of Israel and going, oh, he's pretty puny. They're, they're, they were legitimately terrified of him. They said, Be, act like men. Let's stand up. We've got to fight. Otherwise, we're done. So they recognize that this God is powerful. But they just watched a battle where 34,000 Israelites were slain. And so the, what they're thinking, their worldview, their understanding of theology is our God, Dagon, beat their God, and therefore we killed them. 
So where, where Yahweh fits into this now is Dagon wins. He's more powerful. Yahweh is no mere puny God. He defeated the Egyptians of everybody. So I think what they're doing is they're saying, let's add him to our pantheon. We'll bring him in and we'll set him next to Dagon. Dagon's still our chief. He's still the chief God, but Yahweh is, is going to be added to this. We'll, we'll include him in this. Now, there's some discussion about who Dagon is and, and what he was like. Um, not to get into all the technical stuff, there's one idea that he was a fish god, part fish, part man. It's probably not who he was. He was probably more than likely a god of harvest. He was thought of as the, the father to the gods. He would have been Baal's god or father. Um, so he was he was no mere you know puny deity from uh, kicking around. He is actually pretty well uh, regarded throughout the region. So now we're going to bring Yahweh and we're going to set him in there. We're going to take his, his ark and set him next to Dagon. And so what happens? Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of God. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. This is where our, our author is tipping his hat. This is dripping with sarcasm. This is just so ironic. This author who is a monotheist, he's a Yahweh worshiper, he's looking and he's, he's holding up their fake God and going, look how stupid this is. So, so the picture is they come in in the morning and they're going to offer food to their God and he's laying flat on his face. He's fallen down. Uh, one translator said groveling on the ground before the, the Ark of the Covenant. So here he is, he's fallen over. Now, we don't know what happened overnight. You know, it could have been any number of things. So they don't know what happened either. And so it says, so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Can you just imagine that for a moment? The, the priests come in and say, hey, guys, we need some help. Uh, Dagon, the almighty, the all-powerful, the inscrutable has fallen on his face and we need to pick him up and put him back. That's the God you're going to worship? It's, it's just ironic that they would do that. So the, 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 um, the scene ends and it says, but when they arose the next morning, Okay, maybe the first night was just an accident. Maybe when we put him up there, we didn't set him exactly right on his pedestal and he fell over. But when they arose the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head and both the hands of Dagon were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon who enter into the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So the first time might have been a mistake. Two nights in a row, Dagon, the mighty, the all-powerful, the inscrutable, the, the, the magnificent, has never fallen over before. And now two nights in a row, he's laying on his face. Oh, and by the way, now his hands and his head are broken off. And, and the, the humorous part is he's looking at the, the practices of the pagans. He says, you know, when they go into their temple, they don't step on the threshold. Why? Well, because Dagon fell over before the ark of, the, of our God. Our God is superior. And, and so this picture of Dagon falling down, his head and his hands are broken off. And why didn't he just shatter into a million pieces? Well, I think God had something planned here. He's doing something. What he's showing them is he has no hands. He has no power. He can't work. His head is gone. He can't hear. He can't see. He can't speak. Your God is inept. And as a matter of fact, it says only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. In Hebrew, it actually says only Dagon remained of him. So the picture then is, if you take Dagon, the great and the mighty, the, the almighty, the whatever, and you break off everything about him, and he's just a, a lump of wood laying on the ground, you still have Dagon. 
He's still who he is. He is nothing. There's, there's nothing to him. And so this, this practice of them not stepping on the threshold when they come into the temple, um, I, I can't imagine what they're thinking. Like the threshold was more powerful than Dagon or something. I don't, I don't know what the, the theory was there, but they're still doing it. They still remember what Yahweh did to the Philistines. And so that's, that's what they do to this day. It's ongoing. So that's what happens. Um, how do they interpret it? What are they going to do with this? How do they, how do they handle this? Verse six says, the Lord, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territories. Um, so not only did God break their God, but he afflicted them. Now, it doesn't say at the beginning that he killed people, but by the end, you can tell that he had because it says uh, the men who did not die were struck with tumors. It doesn't mention that there were was pestilence. There was rats and mice climbing all over the place, but they were. We'll see that next time because they make golden images of the, of the mice. So the, the author is kind of keeping it simple, but what happened was pretty terrifying to them. They broke out in tumors. Um, there's some speculation that this was actually hemorrhoids. Um, that's probably not the best understanding of it, though it wouldn't exclude hemorrhoids too. It was things are busting out on their body. They're breaking out in boils. And, you know, that could be that region as well. But the point is the ark is there. Their God is defeated and they're not responding. And so now God breaks out in tumors again or breaks them out in tumors. And so the, the people of Ashdod say, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us because his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. His hand, one, broke both of Dagon's hands, shattered him, snapped him right off. And then not only that, but it says that at the beginning, it says his hand was heavy upon them. Do you remember last week we talked about heavy, the word kavod? The, the root of that is heavy. It's, it's glory. The glory of God is heavy upon us. The, the hand of God is, is bringing his glory among us, and we can't stand before it. And so this picture of them now terrified, and they go, we got to get rid of God, this, this God of them. So what happens, I'll just kind of sum it up, is they haul it off to another city, and the city gets afflicted. Then they haul it off to a third city, and the city's like, you're not bringing that in here. <laughs> we know how this works. And so in the end, they decide we've got to send this thing back. So here's what I think God is doing with this is God had, he could have just afflicted them right off the bat, but he didn't want them to think, you know what? I think Dagon is mad that we snuck another God in there. He's look at what he's doing to us. They didn't, he didn't want them to attribute that to Dagon. And so the first thing he does before the Philistines is he knocks Dagon down. Now, when, when the affliction comes, they attribute it to the right God. It's not Dagon. He got, he got his fanny handed to him. It's Yahweh that we have to fear. And we need to get him out of here. So that's, that's where they go, is they, they resolve that they're going to send him back. Their cry of the city went up to heaven. The cry has come up three times, and this, this is the third time in the story. The first cry was when they hauled the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant out to the battle. And the Israelites see the Ark of the Covenant and a cry goes up and the Philistines go, what is this noise? And it terrifies them. A God has come into the camp. This has never happened before. We're going to get killed. 
The next time we hear the cry is when the ark is captured by the Philistines and the word comes back to um, Shiloh. The cry of the city goes up and Eli says, what is this cry? And now this third time, the ark is, is doing its thing. God is, is working around the ark and the cry of the city this time doesn't go to Eli or the Philistines. Now it goes up to heaven. So what do we what do we get from this story? What what kind of big lesson is is God teaching us through this? Last week the focus was primarily on Israel. And so when when we talked about the ark of the covenant and how it was handled, we focused on Israel. This week the fo focus is exclusively on those outside the covenant community. And so here's what I think is going on. Is I, I think what God is showing us is that idea that we have these lesser gods and he will not stand with them. He will not be part of that pantheon with them. He will separate himself. In 2005, a man named David Foster Wallace, he was an agnostic and an English professor, he gave a commencement speech. And part of his speech, although he's an agnostic, he's not a believer, he experiences truth. And so he is actually speaking something that's really true. Listen to what he said. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spirit type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never, uh, you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. By the way, they are. But that's not the most insidious thing, he says. He says it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure uh, value without ever being fully aware that you're doing it. So we, we have, human beings are built to worship. We are built and designed to desire and to seek. And so what the, the lesson that we're seeing here is, is if we have a, a lesser God, if we have whatever that lesser God is now, we're very sophisticated, um, scientific age, you know, postmodern, all of that. We don't worship carved idols or anything. Well, we kind of do. We can worship, like like uh, um, Wallace was saying, ideas, concepts, the ultimate good. Whatever that ultimate good in your life is, from a theological perspective, we could call that a God. It is the thing that you desire the most. This is the ultimate good that I will have in life. If I have more power, then I will have what is best in life. If I remain beautiful for the rest of my life, then I will have that which is best in my life. And that really is trying to fill that place of God. So we could say that that is a lesser God. So look at what God did with the Philistines. He didn't just come in and say, uh, you know, send a prophet to him and say, hey, haul the ark back. God wants it back now. 
Instead, he first addressed their false god. And he showed them, your God is insufficient. Your God can't measure up. Your God is not all-powerful. He won't work. And, and he, he instead shows the weakness of their God and then the fear of the Lord, and that drives them to return the ark. Now, it's tragic because wouldn't it have been better if they went, hey, time out, guys. Their God beat our God. Maybe we should worship him instead. What's well, it haul Dagon out of that temple and worship Yahweh? But they didn't. It wasn't God's purpose at this point in redemptive history. God's focus at this point in redemptive history is primarily on Israel. Israel is a unique people. They have different diets. They have a Sabbath. They, they worship one God instead of multiple gods. They're odd, given the, the situation they're in, the, the environment they're in. They're weirdos. Nobody else was like that. But God was doing that on purpose. He was forming them into their own people so that people would come in. And people did come in. We see some Gentiles come in. Rahab, he, she heard about what this Yahweh had done, and she wanted to worship him. Ruth said, your God is my God. And there are other Gentiles coming in, but not like we see today, not like what it means in the new covenant. So at that point in redemptive history, God's mission was to form Israel, to, to place his glory there. And then when Israel bore the Messiah, when, when Jesus was born, then the mission changed, didn't it? Now, instead of come and see us, we've got this land, we've got this temple, come and see our God. Now the mission is, I want you to go into every nation and make disciples. Uh, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so God's mission, he, his person hasn't changed. He is who he is, but his mission has changed. Now the Messiah has come. Israel's purpose is complete. Now we go out to the nations and draw the nations in. As God goes out to the nations, will he tolerate lesser gods? Will he put up with lesser gods? As we go as his witnesses to share the, the message of Jesus Christ with people, we have to remember this person is still a worshiper. They're worshiping something, even though they would probably be offended if you said you worship something, they're still worshiping something. There is some ultimate good that they have. And so it's not our job to go in and figure it out and destroy it. Did, it, did God send Israel in to knock Dagon down? God took care of that himself. What our calling is, as we're making disciples, as we're witnesses to Jesus, what we are called to do is to go out and say, the God you're serving won't satisfy. The ultimate good that you're seeking is not going to do it. If your ultimate good is beauty, I can testify, you get old. It happens. The beauty fades. Not that I was that great looking to begin with, but I mean, you know. It just happens. It creeps up on you. If you want money, there is no such thing as enough money. I've said before, I think it was uh, um, Rockefeller or uh, one of those rich guys from that period said, how much money do you need? One dollar more. There was never enough. If you put the weight on, I'm going to have the perfect family. That's that's my identity. That's my my purpose. My children are going to be perfect. You will crush your children. They can't bear the weight of that. And so what we're called to do as we go out and make, uh, make disciples, as we go out and witness to Jesus, one of the things that God could be using us to do is to say, your idol is not going to work for you. I think Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan was very good at that. Now, they're in a unique situation because Manhattan, people go to Manhattan for one reason, success, power. 
they're they're looking to be the top in, in everything they do, the the best musician, the best movie producer, the best whatever. That's why you're there. And so it was very easy for them. Well, I wouldn't say very easy. It was easier for them to identify what the false idols were and to call them out. And so they did a fantastic job. I mean, Redeemer planted a conservative uh, evangelical church in, in Manhattan that grew to about three or 4,000 uh, people and is now uh, multiple campuses. They broke up into like five or six different churches. They did that because Tim Keller's vision was, I need to call out their idols. And so every sermon you listen to him, uh, to, to his, you hear him calling out their idols. What is it that you think is going to make you happy, that is going to fulfill you, going to give you that, that wonderful feeling of being who you should be? I've arrived. What is it? And it won't work. It won't. It can't do it. The only thing that can do that is the king that we are, we're lacking so far in the story. We are waiting for the king. There is no king in Israel. There is no king in the Philistines either, apparently, because when they get together, it's the princes. We need that king to come in. And we don't just need any king. We need Jesus to come in, to step into the middle of this and say, I'm here and I'm going to take care of it. I will supply all of your needs. I will be the good that you desire. And then when you look at the idol, you go, you know, I noticed Dagon's got some cracks in him there. And, and I, you can see the cement where they put his hands and head back on. That's not a God I think I should worship, but you have to replace it with something better. And so that's, I think what we're called to do is, is to go out and to bring to the nations this idea that your God won't work. He won't deliver to you what you want. Let me tell you about a God who can. And then it's God's responsibility to knock Dagon off his pillar in their heart. But we can be faithful witnesses, and we can be part of that. So imagine what this is like. This is this is Paul. Paul had his moment of being knocked to the ground, didn't he? His idol was his righteousness. I am a Pharisee of Pharisee. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, growing in Phariseeism above all my contemporaries. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel in, in Jerusalem. And then he meets Jesus, and something falls to the ground. And now this same Paul would look and say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a huge replacement. This same Paul, when he goes to uh, Athens, he sees a, a, a temple to the unknown God. And and. On Mars Hill, this is what he said. He said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, we are given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Paul's message. When he confronts these other gods, it's not, I'm more righteous than you. He points them to Jesus Christ. So this is the liberating news is God does that work. You don't have to. You just have to be faithful with what he's given you to do. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be faithful what he's given you to do. God will knock those things down. He overlooked the times of ignorance. Those times are over. The message now goes out. And there's a day coming when he will judge.
that's applying it to those outside. I just want to take one moment and, and bring it to us. What does it mean for us? Um, we have a new heart. By the grace of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he has renewed our heart. He has taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He took that heart that was hardened against him, and he inscribed on it his law and, and inclines us to obedience to him. That's great. But we're still walking around in the same old body, and it still has the same tendencies, and it still has the same proclivities and same desires. And so we are at war in this time where we're struggling against the flesh and trying to live according to the spirit. And so we need to recognize we have those little tiny idols in our lives at times too. Where are we seeking to find our ultimate good or our ultimate satisfaction? By God's grace, we're, we're, we would confess ultimately it's only in Jesus Christ. But like what Tozer said is by a secret law, we tend towards the God that we're, we worship. And so we need to be careful with that. By God's grace, he won't leave you there. I don't want you to think, oh, man, I'm stuck in this body, and, and now I'm just trash for the rest of my life. God's not going to leave you there. He's going to work. The hard part is when Dagon falls down, it hurts. It can be really difficult. There's a poem by John Newton. We've sung it. Ramey put it to music um, called I Ask the Lord, and, and it starts like this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and, and I trust he has answered prayer, but it's been in such a way that has almost driven me to despair. And then he goes on and he says he, he hoped, it was his desire that God would just instantly set him free for sin. And instead, what God did was showed him the magnitude of his sin, amplified it in front of his face. And then he says that God frustrated all of his plans and laid him low, just knocked him out. So the poem ends, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for faith and grace. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. That's the promise is it's not going to be easy but it will be faithful and you're in the hands of the ultimate surgeon and he will remove that idol and he will get the ark back where it belongs. And so this I think is, is the picture that's going on. Now what will come next will be the return of the ark, how they decide to, to get it back and, and what will happen then. But we've got an interruption. Next week is the beginning of, um, of Advent. And so next week, a friend of mine is going to come and preach, and we're going to do theophanies. When we come back, we'll have to pick up in the middle of this great story and watch the ark return to Israel. In the meantime, let's pray. God, we confess with our mouth that you are the true, triune, eternal, unchanging, all-powerful God that you spoke a universe into being, that it is your design, your purpose, your plan, according to your way, for your glory. Lord, we know these things and we confess them. But Lord, would you be faithful to make us aware of those times when we sneak in other gods into that, or when we want to fit who you are into our plans and our desires? 
Lord, lead us in a way that we would not recognize Dagon, but we would recognize you and kick Dagon out. He, he's the false God. He's the broken God, the, the trunk of a God who is no God. And so, Lord, open our eyes. But, Lord, also, as we go through our lives and we share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with those around us, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to knock down their idols, too, to show their idols is broken, point out the cracks in them, remind them of when they've had to pick their idol back up and put it in its place, when they've had to glue hands and head back on. And Lord, we pray for revival in our land. Would you wake many people up to the falseness of the God that they've been pursuing? Wake them up to the beauty of who Jesus Christ is, the better God, the true God, the real God, the God who cannot fall over and let them down. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.